Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Yo. And coming to us on the horn of Skype is Brad Avery. Hey. Brad is a writer on the site. This is his first time on the show. Um, he's written some cool pieces for us. He wrote a recent one on Birdman, which is comparing Birdman to uh, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, which is pretty cool. You can check that out. And today we're going to be talking to him about apocalyptic movies, but kind of not the you know overt ones that you would think of, because he wrote a piece a little while back talking about how Bicycle Thieves is kind of a post-apocalyptic movie. It was a really good piece, got a lot of hits. We like it a lot, so we're going to explore that theme today. So Brad, tell us about that piece and how you kind of came to that realization about Bicycle Thieves and what that realization actually is. Uh, I can't really remember how I came up with the connection, but it just sort of dawned on me that Bicycle Thieves is this really desolate film, and it's very much about survival in in a post-war wasteland for the most part, I sort of made the connection to stuff like The Road or A Boy and His Dog or Mad Max or just these these loners kind of going through the wasteland to survive. And it seemed to me that kind of what the, the core of what the films are about is kind of the same idea. Uh, if you take the basic plot description of you have a man and his son wandering through a post-war hellscape where they are accosted by bands of just rabid natives who don't want them. It's kind of, are you describing the road or are you describing bicycle thieves? Right. And, you know, uh, you have a man and his dog struggling for survival to find shelter while everybody around them seems to just want to kill them or want them dead. And, you know, a boy and his dog or Umberto D. So, you know, obviously Italian neorealism the the whole idea of it is to depict reality as it is. It kind of goes contrary to this whole nuclear hellscape metaphor for society versus this is how society really is. And I remember showing the piece to this film professor I knew, and he kind of didn't really see the connection. He was kind of like, well, you know, what DeSica was doing is, and I understand that. But it's what did like he how- say DeSica was doing? He pretty much, you know, said the neorealists were trying to depict Italy for how it was post-war and try and draw attention to societal mores, whereas post-apocalyptic is very high-concept sci-fi stuff that is the opposite. And he didn't really go that much more in depth. It was online that I talked to him. But I think it's more like, John, in your your piece where the, the most recent one you did on superhero movies not being Westerns, it's kind of like how you said romantic comedies are the new westerns in a way right and it's not not because of the literal components but more of just the ideas and what they're they're approaching and kind of their depiction of america so what if we had to create like a taxonomy what do post-apocalyptic movies present i'd say they're de- they're presenting images of desolation and destruction societies that have collapsed and they're largely a lot of the time about individuals trying to survive in this landscape and i think that's what you're seeing in mad max and that's what you're seeing in neorealist films and in i think a lot of other films as well and there's also other forms of apocalyptic movies or there's things like melancholia that's about one person's destruction Mm. and that kind of being metaphorically realized in a planet colliding with the earth. So there's different ways to really go about it, but I'd say the post-apocalyptic genre as we generally see it are about those key themes of desolation and survival. Well, what's interesting about that is the post-apocalyptic genre really is a product of nuclear anxiety. Cause like before that you had stuff like Mary Shelley's book about the end of the world and you had um War of the Worlds, but it was really kind of sort of scattered elements and all of them were really about some great inhuman force wiping things out. But the post-apocalypse that we think of that we just saw a few months ago in the Mad Max trailer and all that stuff is really tied into this specifically post-World War II nuclear age fear, which I think your professor is half right and half wrong at the same time because he's right. That's not 
Tosika and the neorealists weren't creating a fiction so much as they were finding a metaphor in their absolutely ravaged reality. You know, like the the end of the world war, the Second World War was about as bad as the world had ever looked in Europe, except for um, parts of Europe kind of looked like that after the First World War. But on that scale, you really would have to go back to something like the plague to match that. So when your professor's saying they were just representing reality, I don't think he's thinking through enough of what that reality was, which is kind of interesting to your, about your, your piece, that, that point. Because um, did either of you see the movie Murderers Among Us? It's a 1946 German movie. No. No. It's, uh, you both are like, you both should check it out. It's, it's a German noir. It's, it's about this guy who's killing people in the ruins of a, a bombed out city in Germany. I forget which city it is, but it's, it's one of the ones that really got devastated. It's all shot, like to seek a shot, it's shot live in the streets in these real areas. But it's shot in terms of framed like a period piece. Whereas there's a lot of focus on the small minutia of um, the weird things you do to survive in that period. You know, you, you see them put up like, because their windows are all blasted out, you see them put up like replacement windows and just these small details that you really would only see in a period piece as opposed to something like a movie set now because there's just no interest in that kind of minutia. But the filmmaker, it was, uh, I forget his name, Wolfgang something. He, like I think DeSica, sort of realized that their period was a was a metaphor. Right. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Yeah, and just, also yeah. it can be it can be so personal too. I mean, what's an apocalypse to one person in their own life doesn't necessarily have to be like a war per se. It can be just some awful event that kind of tears them apart and sends them on some sort of journey because of that. So you can you can expand the scope if we're creating sort of a definition for it. You can expand the scope to, you know, if it's an apocalypse to the main character, then that's really all you need. But to speak to the film that you just brought up, it, it kind of jarred my memory. And I was like, you know what? Leon Marine Priest, the Melville film yeah. with uh, Belmondo. I always forget that that setting is like this awful war setting because most of the film is about this priest talking to this woman who has doubts about her faith. And it's set in this town that's ravaged by war. And that's the backdrop. And you could put it in that umbrella that we're creating because it's, you know, this is what these people are going through and this is how they're dealing with it. And they're dealing with it through these conversations that turn kind of romantic and sexual. And they're both trying to uh, deal with that aspect as they're trying to also explore their own philosophies and stuff. And, you know, that that could be a a post-apocalyptic film. Right. And you can also see it in, um, I mean, it's obviously blatantly post-apocalyptic, but Children of Men, which is probably the great post-apocalyptic film of the 2000s, that shot at the beginning where the woman staggers out of the um, coffee shop holding her severed arm, Mm. that is a shot lifted from um, Saving Private Ryan, Uh, which is a flat out war movie. And that's, uh, that's the war, the apocalypse war, you know, that's D-Day World War II, the, you know, the, the start of the concept of apocalyptic fiction was then. Mm. But then also Spielberg got that shot, the guy holding his severed arm from, uh, from Kurosawa, from Ron, which was um, also a war movie in a sense, but it was really depicting the end of a, um, of a somewhat inconsequential era in world history, which was, you know, it was, it was the the end of one man's um, regime as a uh, as a statesman, and so it was it was sort of an apocalypse for him. Yeah, that was it, the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. And that one sort of unfolds into wandering through the uh, through the wilderness in the way that you know something like the road does. And that one, you know, that's his uh, Ron is is his version of King Lear. So a lot of that sort of comes back to that. But yeah, the, I'm I'm kind of just fascinated by um, the obvious similarities between these two that uh i guess are not digested often i mean godzilla godzilla is a war movie yeah and it's also the tokyo sequence at the end of that one is post-apocalyptic and it's got that same sort of i wrote a uh, a piece a while back on godzilla and kind of how people always you know talk about the nuclear aspects of it but i think people forget 
often is just because it's not really taught in American high schools that often about the fact that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were the end of a several years long firebombing campaign by the Allies. Yeah. And so you had these wooden cities going up in flames. So I think for a Japanese audience in 54, when Godzilla came out, you know, they're obviously still thinking about the nuclear bombs, but everybody is thinking about burning cities and watching just fire rain down on them. Mm. And that's a lot of the imagery of Godzilla is just everything's just aflame. Yeah. And the fishing boat beginning is um, specifically a fishing boat because it was supposed to remind everybody of the Lucky Dragon incident where that fishing boat got irradiated by uh, American nuclear tests in the Pacific in like 51 or something just before the movie came out. I find that concept of the post-apocalyptic interesting where it's not so much the, um, we sort of touched on this a moment ago, but it's not so much the the, the big hellstorm war, but this just kind of like the trying to figure out what the fuck even happened. You know, those nuclear tests, we were trying to like figure out what we had done to Japan. Mm. And um, a lot of 50s science fiction goes into the fear of, you know, like, what did we just do? You have stuff like Tarantula and uh, The Incredible Shrinking Man, which is a fucking phenomenal movie, by the way, if anybody hasn't seen it. But you have all these ones where where you're looking at a um, apocalypse almost retroactively. And that's an element that's kind of big in uh, in stuff like The Road and also particularly, I think, the zombie stuff where you, you kind of have to like, there's a lot of people trying to figure out, you know, like, what did we create? Yeah, like uh, Day of the Dead has a lot of that. And uh, I think 28 Days Later has a little bit of that too. 28 yeah. Days Later, I mean, that one pretty much nailed it. I mean, that, that opening scene of 28 Days Later, you know, even if it was just a short film, it would have as much impact on me as the entire film did when I saw that. Like that was just a perfect little piece. Yeah, and it's it's really heavily indebted to um, Day of the Triffids, which also opened with somebody uh, waking up in a hospital that's deserted, and um, Target Earth, which opens up with this woman waking up after a failed suicide attempt and finding L.A. deserted. And both of those are kind of those um, nuclear mutation and like mechanical monster, uh, real you know like end of World War II fears which really kind of roared back in our lifetime, except instead of, you know, like monsters and, and machines and everything, we became afraid of, of masses mm-hmm. of people. Yeah, the idea of lots of people or the absence thereof. Yeah. I've, I've always been a fan of uh, Day of the Dead because, precisely because it's the smaller film. People always talk about that original script that was going to have like an island and everything. That was- oh, it would have been terrible. Yeah, I think what the film we got is this amazing rising boil of all this just anger and rage of these survivors trying to rationalize what is going on and what has happened to them, what has happened to the world, and they can't handle it. And I think that's really the most terrifying thing in probably the whole series is that, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but that general who's just a complete psychopath. Rhodes, Captain Rhodes. Probably the scariest character in any of those three Romero trilogy films. Well, what's interesting about that aspect of them is um, that's sort of present in Bicycle Thieves because that was very present, I think, in Europe after the after the Second World War. There was really this Europe more than America. I've I've always thought is sort of um, ideologically invested, whereas um, America there's sort of a a um, Pragmatism isn't quite the word, but there's less interest politically in being a part of something and following the rubric of something. Whereas in Europe, you had, um, you know, like Marxists were trying to make things conform to Marxism as opposed to the other way around. And fascists were trying to make things conform to fascism as opposed to the other way around. Whereas here, we kind of like to justify our ideology towards what we want, you know? There's a lot of manifestos in Europe. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a manifesto kind of a place. So in a lot of those post-war movies, there's sort of this um, this underlying sense of um, like this this kind of weird fear of of the um, the thoughts they had and the 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 tenets they held. You know what I mean? There's there's this kind of like disillusionment about um, believing in almost political scripture. 
Yeah, it's like the did we pick the wrong idea and what is the right idea sort of thing. Yeah, I went into that a little bit with my uh, piece about Michael Bay and futurism. And it's something that came up a lot when the futurists were around in the teens and, and the, the dawn of the 20th century. They were really, um, they were making manifestos and they were trying to stick to them. Whereas now a Michael Bay who follows the same sort of ideology but as a 21st century American, just doesn't make a manifesto about it. Right. You know, it, it just sort of... It's the surface elements without that foundation underneath it. Yeah, or the foundation goes unsaid. Mm -hmm. Whereas in European politics at the war era, I mean, those, those foundations all went said. Right, it was overt. Yeah. So moving yeah. away from uh, war a bit towards a more personal post-apocalyptic stuff... I would put up Brown Bunny as kind of an example of a personal apocalypse, uh, a post-apocalypse where it's just one person sort of reeling. And it kind of fits under that umbrella that we've been creating because, you know, here's this guy who's not really interacting with much civilization over the course of his journey. Um, you know, he's just a lonely guy on the road who's kind of sad. And we kind of discover what the inciting incident was that, caused him to feel this way towards the end of the film we figure out like what the apocalypse was that he's you know running from or running to and you know he he encounters like a couple scattered people along the way but mostly it's just this very personal isolated journey across america um, so i would put that one up as a good example and in turn buffalo 66 as well vincent gallo's other film because you have this town who had this embarrassing, horrible football loss a while back, and they're kind of dystopian now because of that. And so their their apocalypse as a town was this this great football loss, and now that's this depressed town that's the the setting for the romance and the comedy and the drama that goes on throughout that entire film. So those would be two examples that kind of fall under there. What about Natural Born Killers? Yeah, I've never been into Stone much. I think Natural Born Killers is his best movie. I usually don't like his movies. Um, I don't like the way he writes. I think he writes in a really kind of sloppy... He indicates a lot of what he's doing. Yeah. But Natural Born Killers was a Tarantino script. He's a much sort of wilier writer. But Tarantino says that it was pretty butchered, apparently. Yeah, but I mean, what he means is that it's not the movie he would make. Sure. Yeah. And his version of that wouldn't be very good either. I read well, his script and it's really, it would have been sort of prosaic and just, you needed the kind of like particular weirdness of the two of them, I think, to collide. Mm -hmm. Because that movie really gets, um, it gets unhinged in a way that I think either of them alone wouldn't be able to do. But it's it's almost like a um, like a road warrior from the perspective of Lord Humongous. You know, it's this, this sense of being the um, god of the wasteland. Mm. And they have that same sort of like cobbled together look with like the weird glasses and the freshly shaved heads and the, that same sort of like feel that they just emerged out of the desert. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's yeah, it feels almost like Road Warrior, maybe more like the first one, maybe more like Mad Max from Toe Cutter's perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, this warlord who has his desert to play in. I always thought the first Mad Max was interesting just for the aspect of the apocalypse has already happened, but nobody realizes it's happened. Yeah. I don't know, Natural Born Killers, I'm just trying to remember back to it because I haven't seen it since high school. That's one of and those high school ones, yeah. <laughs> it is, but um, know, it might be interesting to go back to. But I just, when I'm thinking of that movie, I'm thinking of like the stuff in the desert where they have that whole peyote trip. And um, the other thing that pops out a lot is just uh, the stuff with Robert Downey Jr. is that cameraman and I don't know where I'm really going with this either. <laughs> it's just the memorable parts, I guess. Yeah, the memorable parts. But I, don't know, I was thinking with when you say road movies with that kind of desolateness, I was thinking of a lot of 60s stuff. And I was thinking of, you know, American 60s when you were talking about manifestos and Europe ideologically and how it felt like there was this real attempt to bring that type of ideology based, just that mindset to America with like a lot of those, you know, Maoists and uh, young young socialists during yeah, the yeah, that 60s. was another uh, manifesto era. Yeah, and but I also you know, road movies like like Easy Rider just kind of 
very much you know we blow up the america bike like how how blunt can you really get with that but then also kind of the ending of uh two lane blacktop you know i was thinking about two lane blacktop before we uh started doing this i was like ah should i bring it up should i not bring it up? i didn't know if it would go over well but i'm glad you brought it up yeah and just sort of that it a film that literally disintegrates yeah yeah um you literally have this and what is there that he's driving into? He's driving into the nothingness because it just it all breaks apart at the end. Now, a lot of these are what get called like neo-Westerns a lot. So are Westerns post-apocalyptic, particularly intentionally Easy Rider and something like, say, Electra Glides in Blue or um, Tulane Blacktop? They're really heavily, heavily Western influenced. It affects the setting a lot, too. Westerns are almost post-apocalyptic in reverse, though. You you start out with the wasteland, and it's all about trying to build a um, civilization out of it, which actually, come to think of it, is the plot of The Postman, and it's the plot of I Am Legend, and the plot uh, the plot of a lot of these post-apocalyptic movies, and the and the 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 framework of them visually. I never thought about this before, but it does seem to be very, very Western. Yeah, because it's like this blank slate. Of civilization. And it's also the lone man coming in and I, altering the power balance. And with, uh, I think you get more of an apocalyptic feeling with a lot of the acid westerns from that era, especially yeah. like, speaking of Monty Hellman, like the shooting just has this really just weird, vicious feeling to it of, of just death just filling every frame in that movie, I think. Yeah, and I mean, every Western of 1976 was really about the end of the Western as a genre. So in their way, all those Westerns are about the end of the world. You know, Kayama is about the end of the world in, in its practical cinematic terms. And uh, Outlaw Josie Wales is the same sort of thing where it starts with the absolute anguish of the uh, end of the Civil War. You know, a guy who his entire life was taken by that war. And he sort of goes on and tries to find individuals along the way. My internet cut out for a second, and I missed the uh, first half of up to uh, Law Josie Wales, so what you were saying. Oh, I was saying that I think every Western of 1976 is kind of about the end of the world, because they're all about the end of Westerns. So, you know, you have the shootist where it's about um, John Wayne learning how to die, and you have Kayama, which is really about I've- just sort of drifting in nothingness. I've got that on Blu-ray, and I haven't watched yet. I should do that. It's terrific. It's, I mean, it's some of the worst music you've ever heard, but the movie is really good. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. So some more uh, contemporary examples. Um, I'll throw out Gummo, which isn't a movie that I particularly like. You know, the only Harmony Korine that I like is uh, Spring Breakers, which I absolutely adore. But Gummo definitely falls into this because it's, uh, you know, people forget about the the conceit of that movie because they're just fascinated by the surface stuff but it, the whole point of it is that this tornado has hit this small town and this is the aftermath of that so that kind of falls into that that's definitely a post-apocalyptic movie but it's it's not a narrative it's all these little sort of avant-garde uh, vignettes dealing with the uh, this post-apocalyptic uh situation do you guys like gummo are you guys fans no i'm the same I... way i only like spring breakers yeah yeah, I with Gummo and kind of Trash Jumpers too. It's like I'm supposed to be repulsed, but I'm just kind of bored. Right. The thing about Trash Jumpers was it it felt like um like any movie that tries so hard to shock you, I think just isn't gonna. Cuz you know, you you go into it and it you just start to wonder like why does why does the filmmaker feel like he needs to get this juvenile kind of reaction out of people and you watch it and you're like for a little bit you're like oh that's gross and then you're like this is just it just keeps going and it's the kind of and thing it's that like could, how long can you be grossed out by something on yeah, end it because the answer a, is not an hour and a half it could fill a music video and be like <laughs> some weird music video you saw yeah but, it would have been yeah. a good nine inch nails video yeah i think trash number is only like 70 minutes too and it still feels way too long yeah it's i mean it's weak it's it's just a weak attempt at something that um i think you need a lot more anguish to pull that off it's a good aesthetic but it's not used to then all right that's our setting and now we build something above it like you did with spring breakers yeah you know what it's like it's like the vhs movies they work the same way the the frame stories in all three of them are about um one way or another they're all about like people who 
stumble upon this guy's collection of like snuff VHSs. Mm-hmm. But um, in the first one, there's like 20 minutes of kids like committing minor crimes and then they find the stash of VHSs. And it's supposed to be this whole big metaphor about how, you know, like they're, uh, they're like evil brought this evil out. And you just like, it just doesn't play for 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. It play, it's something that if you think of the, every frame of the film, every shot of the film telling a different sentence of the film, you get like 20 minutes that tell you the same sentence over and over. It's just, you know, like, and Trash Hoppers is the same thing where it just, it doesn't, you can't sustain that for that long because it's not that shocking a revelation. Yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of footage, as uh, Greg DeLiso would say, his, his much-used <laughs> phrase of, it's just a bunch of footage. It, in that case, it, you know, Trash Hoppers, it, it literally is just a bunch of, footage and I'm sure Harmony would you know agree with that assessment of it it's just that he particularly enjoys that giant bunch of footage yeah, I think he, I, he, he likes performance art a lot I feel yeah. like and, and I think he had to get a lot out of his system it seems yeah, like he was I, like this artist that had all this stuff in him that had to come out before he could really sit down and write a movie you know <laughs> like a real movie I think Trash Humpers would have worked better if he had gone with his original idea, which was just leave it on a VHS tape and throw it on the ground somewhere where, for people to find. Mm-hmm. That, I think, it would have been much more interesting to watch if it had spread around as this thing of like, look, guys, I just found this on the ground and I have no idea what this is, versus here's a filmmaker it with accolades to his name. Like that, though. It would, That's the type yeah, of thing like, he says that, and like the, the idea of leaving that movie on the ground is compelling. But picking yeah. that movie up, that's not compelling. Let me tell you a true story. When I was 12 years old, a dude in a scream mask gave me a plastic garbage bag full of porn. You know what I did? <laughs> I didn't watch it. I just left it in the woods. It was like Halloween, and it was just this creepy teenager, and I didn't watch it because that's not compelling. <laughs> did you tell him it wasn't compelling as it was after? I should have. I should have given him an Ebert's compelling. thumb down. I don't but buy But you know this. what I mean? Like that kind of shit, that kind of performance art that's... Who gives a fuck? It's yeah, it's but, not that easy to shock anybody so anymore. I'm, I'm sure you trashed him in the, the local paper afterwards. His, oh, totally. <laughs> I gave it one star. I called it tedious. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like that kind of um, concept of performance art, which I think really developed in like the 60s, this idea of like just gross out, shock you. Inflicting things on others. Yeah. Freak out the squares thing. Like none of us are the squares anymore. Everybody, I mean, Jackass is like the biggest fucking hit in the world. Nobody cares. You know, you can't, in a post-jackass world, you can't alarm anybody with trash humpers. Yeah, it has a it has a time-sensitive aspect to it, you know, the jackass thing, because, you know, you end up then trying to find somebody who doesn't know who Johnny Knoxville is, which is very hard. Or like the Borat thing of like, Borat's this huge sensation, so he can't really do it anymore because there are too many people who know who he is. And, and jerky boys, too. I mean, at a certain point, Everybody knew that they were getting pranked on the phone and they knew the voices well enough that you can't really do it anymore. It's very, very, uh, you know, strike while the iron's hot kind of thing. That's the trouble with modern art in general. I feel like a lot of it is really, um, they're trying to pull the same old tricks that were compelling when they were pulled a half a century ago. So I'm glad that John Waters stopped making movies because in the 70s, Pink Flamingos, there you go. It's, it's this big thing. Today, if you're trying, you just, you come off as you're a 60 year old man making creepy bullshit about just people being naked and eating shit. It just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, you're the world's oldest 12 year old. Right. There's not a way to like blow people away with the shit that Corinne was trying to do in um, Trash Humpers. You just, you can't do sleazy old gross out shock anymore. Nobody cares. It's been, it's been happening for 30 years. Whereas, Spring Breakers might be his most shocking movie in parts because there are parts of that narrative that are really pretty raw and they're just like not what you It's very expect. emotional. Yeah. And that's where he gets the shock from is how emotional it, it gets in that movie. The scene where uh, you have his wife on the floor in the party saying you're never going to get this pussy is probably one of the most tense I've been in the theater in years. I think that's one of his like yeah. finest moments just for building building that scene the way he builds it. Yeah, the intimacy is really shocking in that. There's a, like you you're you get really tense at how much they just lay bare to each other. You know, like when he starts fucking sucking the gun barrels, like that is really you just like 
And it's not so much the imagery in any gross out way. It's like just the level of brinksmanship and like trust. Yeah. That really works there. I think it. Uh, he's cutting in and out. Are Let sure me read. Not just a robot. That's just it. Like it's. Hold on, you're, you're cutting in and out. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, we're, you're good. You're good. You were robot voice. Okay, yeah, we oh, got okay. you back. Though. Yeah. Um. Oh shit! You guys found out I'm a Terminator. <laughs> um. I knew we were gonna figure out something about you. Are yeah. you actually viral marketing for that new Terminator movie? <laughs> is that is that your purpose here today, Brad Avery? Are you here to tell us about Terminator 5 or 6 or whatever Genesis it is? Genesis with a Y. Is it 5 now? It's 5. <laughs> it's Genesis with an I and a Y. Oh, Lord. <laughs> where'd they, where'd yeah. they squeeze the I in? After the um, N? The second E. Oh, my God. The e now they're just <laughs> cheating at Scrabble. That's yeah. all this is. You know what it is, though? It's it's, it's so they have their their own version of it yeah. so then they can hashtag it and you know track it. It's and why stuff. the Sci-Fi Channel became S-Y-F-Y. Exactly. It's yeah. brandable. So where do we leave off? Uh, we've deviated tremendously. Yeah. Um, uh, we were talking about Gummo being an apocalyptic movie, which I agree with. Yeah. I guess um, another contemporary example, John, we were talking about this when we were trying to figure out stuff to talk about would be... Serious Man? Serious Man. Yeah. Serious That's almost man. like a pre-apocalypse. Yeah. It's almost like a, like a movie about a Cassandra or something. You know, you just watch the anxiety of uh, waiting for something bad to happen and then something bad happens. Yeah. Serious Man, I think, is really... Uh, a spectacular movie. That one in No Country, I think, really have this all-consuming dread. Mm. And they're both like, they, it's like they found the outer borders of dread. Was that back-to-back? I uh, think no, so. No, Burn After Reading. Oh, right. Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that string where they had four in a row each year. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, Inside Lewin Davis tried to do the same sort of thing, but it just didn't work for me. Lewin Davis, I think, was a little, um, a little just not enough. You know, it held too heavily on... Um, there were a lot of scenes that meant exactly the same as the scene before them, mm. you know? Which is a really hard thing to sort of calibrate, but I think is is a problem I have with a lot of movies. You'll feel like there's just redundancy within scenes. And inside Lewin Davis, it was just like every scene was telling you the same thing about Lewin Davis. Yeah, it's like you think you're going for a motif, but you're really just repeating yourself well it's like a bad first date is what it is yeah. i mean you just get a very bad impression of this guy because you don't keep you don't keep learning things about him he doesn't become any more interesting to you he's just the same sad sack wiener the whole time right whereas um serious man was about a kid who had a lot of the same sort of qualities as him but he just felt a little more dynamic it's a dense movie that one yeah i think a serious man is up there with their best work oh yeah top top three maybe What's your number one, both of you? Uh, either Barden Fink or maybe Serious Man. Um, I think Serious Man. I think that's my number one. <sighs> You're both wrong. It's Fargo. You love Fargo. I love Fargo. You I like the series too, right? Didn't you see that? Yeah, the series is pretty good. Yeah. Um, I liked it less as it went on. Fargo, I think, I, I might say that's the best movie of the 90s, flat out. I mean, Fargo, I think, Fargo, every element of what makes them great is in Fargo. It's mm. that same sort of um, desolation and that same sort of peculiarity of space and like that same sort of normal good versus like unholy evil, you know, that that sort of um, unbalanced conflict that really works. And that I just love the end of it. I mean, you're staring in the face of like pure evil in the back of your uh, back of your car. And what else do you say? But don't you know any better? Right. You know, I, I love Fargo. But the more I watch it, the more I like it. You know, and one I always loved was uh, Man Who Wasn't There. That never yeah. got enough love. That was a really good one. It's a little that. affected, but I think it's really good. I think it probably would have gotten more love had it not been so strictly to that aesthetic. Yeah, like it's it has moments a little bit where it feels like they're wearing uh, their dad's clothes, you mm. know. But for the most part, I really liked that one. I loved his hair in that movie. That was such a great little Was that aspect. Scarlet in that one? I think it was, yeah. Oh, man, she was all over the place for a while there. She had some good fucking movies around that time. She has an underappreciated career, I think. Oh, definitely. Especially, I mean, people are catching up to it now because, you know, Under the Skin and stuff like that. Under the Skin, which was pretty apocalyptic in its way. Under the Skin, I think, is my number two for the year, right behind Citizen Four. Yeah, Under the Skin was great. Citizen Four was the documentary, right? Yeah. Uh, Citizen Four is, I don't know, you just, you have to see it. it. It plays out like... 
a typical spy thriller, like maybe a little bit of John le Carré. And it takes place just in this hotel room with Snowden just revealing all this information for the first time because he contacted uh, Glenn Greenwald from The Guardian and Laura Poitras, the documentary filmmaker. And this is, they get together in this hotel room and she is filming him as he leaks this information and as it goes live on the internet. I didn't realize they had that that much gripping footage of that. Yeah. That's awesome. The leak. And it just, it feels like, like a thriller at times because there's things like them. I don't want to give certain moments away that are just great in the theater, but um, there's things like them just like unplugging the phones Mm. to make sure that there's no one listening in or um, Snowden trying to change his appearance so that he can get on a plane and get out of Hong Kong. That sounds like that movie from a few years ago. Did either of you see it about um, they just interviewed a cartel hitman in a hotel room? For like oh, an I hour and a half. I didn't hear and he about had, that. He had like uh, he oh. had something over his head, so you couldn't see his face, and they modulated his voice, and it was just like the grimmest. That sounds good too. Like yeah, just like haunting stories. All right, we're gonna wrap it up here and come back yeah. to you in a couple minutes, and we'll do some questions. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have listened this far into this episode, chances are you are a fan of Smug Film. And if you're a fan of Smug Film, you should become a member of Smug Film Club because you're missing out on some great stuff that you could be enjoying. Smug Film Club is our online mailing list. We're not going to email you when an episode goes up. We're not going to email you when an article goes up on the site. The only time we're going to email you is when we have a free gift for you. These gifts include... Bonus podcast episodes that will never be on iTunes or anywhere else. The only way to get them is by becoming a member of Smug Film Club for free. When you sign up, you will get our Best of 2014 podcast episode where we talk about all our favorite films of 2014. And you can only get that by being a Smug Film Club member. So go to smugfilm.com slash club put in your first name, last name, and email address. You'll get that episode right away. And you'll get all sorts of other fun stuff every month. Enjoy. And now back to the show. And we're back. Greg R. asks, what's your favorite color usage in film for uh, 2014? Anybody like any colors? This is going to sound weird. The Purge 2. Yeah? Good color? There's a... The bulk of the movie is set at night, which means that the beginning and the end all take place at magic hour. So there's these like beautiful shots of people locking down the city and like shuttering up their uh, houses and their storefronts and everything with this like golden sunset behind them. Really looked good. Nice. Two was a really pretty movie. I like that example. I didn't even think of that, but that is a great answer. And plus all the night sequences just have, you know, that great, Escape from New York vibe to them, which you know everyone's compared it to Escape from New York, but it's it's spot on. Yeah, they it pop. just looks gorgeous. Yeah, I I was gonna say maybe Grand Budapest Hotel just because I love I really love Anderson's visual aesthetic. I know on a past episode you guys were kind of saying how you're not in love with him, but it really clicked for me. I think it just was he, he uses these very you're um, becoming a Terminator again. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right, I think um, we I have know. your your voice is good now. Which okay. of the uh, which of the environments did you like best in that movie? Which of the I, shooting okay, styles? My fa- I'd say the general the academy ratio settings because it it feels a lot of the time just so vibrant. There's like that sh- that elevator that they're in that's just bright red that it's just kind of blinding for mm-hmm. a moment. Looks gorgeous. There's those kind of more washed out like pinks and greens that are all over the advertising that I really love. Uh, yeah, and I got the other answer for this is. I really, really love the party sequences in Neighbors. Yeah. Which really surprised me with how they, they kind of looked like spring breakers. And I just did not expect that from that movie going in. Nice. Neighbors is really pretty. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I haven't seen Jack shit this year, but I did see this movie. I'm blowing through the Angel movies. You guys have heard about the Angel movies, about like this 15-year-old uh, prostitute that like solves serial killer m- murders and shit no i've never heard of that oh it's it's delightful and it's terrible but it's got delightful moments 
Um, but the second one, Avenging Angel, the opening like 15 minutes of that movie, that's the that's the only like great part of that movie. And the colors, like there's this great sequence with like no dialogue where it's just this woman who's like going undercover as a prostitute while there are these mob guys that are coming to kill her like before she goes out and stuff because she like leaked some information. And it's just this great sequence of um, colored lights, you know, basking off her nude body as she like puts on her wire as well as like puts on her like brassiere and stuff. And it's like this almost like the Palma-esque kind of thing. It's like it's one of the most beautiful sequences I've seen in that kind of like thriller, pulpy cult genre. So that was that was my favorite use of color. Uh, so check that one out, Avenging Angel. You can get all three Angel movies for like five bucks on Amazon. They all came out this year. No, they these are from the eighties. It's just what oh. I've seen. I haven't seen fucking any two thousand fourteen movies really. I haven't been out to the theater in a while. Yeah, that that would be my example. Next question is. Crystal asks, do you think space can be anything but a uh, catalyst for our own destruction in, uh, in films? Well, where does destruction and, and uh, creation, where do you divide the two of them? I mean, 2001, it's very much about creation, but there's also this sense of dying that's all over mm-hmm. 2001 and this sense of just... We still have a very Judeo-Christian sense of space as sort of a, uh, an afterlife for mankind, Mm-hmm. And even a lot of the the scientists, you, you know, Carl Sagan would almost describe it like that a lot. You know, like we were we were born here and we need to ascend to there. And there's this sense of it, both a little bit in science, but very much in art as as a as an afterlife mm. for man. So I've never well, felt space was a destructive setting. I thought of it really as more of a it's hope, I guess. Yeah, it's it's in- just sort of enduring. Like look at Star Trek. I mean, there's this sense of just endless. It's like the sea. There's just endless rolling mm. everything. Well, Interstellar is about using space as a uh, a way to save mankind, not destroy it. Right. And um, I, you know, you also have like close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. Uh, that's that's just such a um, hopeful movie. Yeah. And ET. Yeah. There's there's nothing about space being a catalyst for destruction. In fact, I'm you know I, I can think of examples, but I feel like half. The examples I, I think of either have nothing about a catalyst for our own destruction or are hopeful. Yeah. Or about rebirth. Like gravity is very much about rebirth, even though it has, you know, that destruction in it. Yeah. I mean, gravity is a giant birth metaphor. Most space movies are like big birth metaphors. 2001 is a big birth metaphor. There's yeah. just a lot of, you know, birth in space. Is that your next movie, Birth in Space? Be a good movie. All right. Third question. What are some good examples of directors going against type? And uh, the examples, I, I didn't even mention his name. Lewis. Lewis asked this question. Uh, the examples he gave are uh, Lynch doing a straight story and uh, Hitchcock doing Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So directors going against type. What are some good examples of that? Well, we've talked about The Killers already, but I would throw... Um... The Killers being, uh, you know, the fantastic... Kubrick movie that's my favorite of his ouvoir. I love that one. Yeah, it's a it's a sort of gritty small crime story. But I would go with um, Chaplin has this fantastic movie. It's the only non comedy he ever made in his career called uh, A Woman of Paris, and uh, it's nineteen twenty three. He's not in it, which is also unique to that movie in his career. It's the only one he ever made that he's not in, and it's the only one he ever made that's not a comedy. He had to put a disclaimer on the front of the movie. <laughs> saying that I'm not going to be in this and it's not funny. Right. But it's this beautiful little drama. The acting in that movie, I mean, Chaplin was such a gifted director of acting because you have, it's probably the most naturalistic I've ever seen silent film acting. It really feels like 30 years in the future. There's this one part where um, a guy gives a woman a uh, necklace and she throws it out the window in an argument. And uh, it's Adolf Manjou's the guy and they cut back to him and he just like really quickly laughs before they start fighting again. And it's just this like really beautiful, spontaneous moment that you don't really, those are hard to come by. A Woman of Paris is really phenomenal. How about Brad? You got, uh, got any ideas? Um, I'm, I'm not sure this is necessarily against type, especially because it's early work versus later work. But I was thinking of Ken Russell's Monitor episodes. People, you know, expect the devils and altered states from him. But then you have those 
short documentaries he did about all those composers and artists like uh, Elgar and Always on Sunday. Those get pretty are, weird, though, you know? They they do. And I, I was just trying to think of an example for this, and that's kind of the first one I thought of. But I still I still think that, um, you know, you see his, his style forming, and especially in stuff like the Debussy film. And I haven't seen all of them. But um, I, I really love just kind of seeing those short, quainter, in a way, documentaries that he did. Um, I think Elgar has this one of the best uses of pomp and circumstance in any film ever, which is laying it over this World War One footage. And this, it's just absolutely gorgeous. Which was the one of those where they had the sequence, the handheld sequence when they were horseback riding? Oh, I don't know. I, I might might not have seen that one, or I might have and forgotten that sequence. They kind of blend together after a while. But that there's this sequence where it's... um. Two people, man and a woman, riding a horseback, and it, it's it's like quick, like effervescent handheld stuff. And it doesn't. You're right. It doesn't really feel like Ken Russell. Hmm. Yeah, it's lighter. Um, I really love the one he did on Henri Rousseau, uh, always on Sunday. And there's this beautiful shot in there of uh, of Rousseau kind of putting the finishing touches on a painting, and the woman is in the uh, kind of the laid back, her right arm extended and pointing. Uh, to the left, and then Rousseau comes in like God in uh, the Michelangelo painting and finishing off the touch, mm-hmm. like the the artist creating this woman, and it's just this gorgeous shot, just done perfectly. Nice. I gotta check those out. My example would be uh, uh, maybe Lakeview Terrace. Like I like a lot of the early Neil LeBute stuff, like um, Your Friends and Neighbors and uh, In the Company of Men. But I really liked uh, Lakeview Terrace. I've never seen it. It's a uh, yeah. I mean, you you know what it is basically. It's the uh, Samuel Jackson one where it's uh, a guy's name Patrick Wilson, I think, is like the next door neighbor, and it's like an interracial couple that has this next door neighbor who's like this racist black cop. That's like it's a very three dimensional character for uh, Samuel, and it's just handled really well. It's it's handled with uh, a lot more nuance than you would expect from this kind of like weird neighbor that's trying to get you to leave kind of movie. You know, like there was like a bunch of those that like in like the early 90s, like Pacific Heights and like Hyder in the house and like there's kind of <laughs> neighbors trying to get you out of there or kill you or something, but you can't really go to the cops or if you do, they're like, oh, there's nothing we Single could do. Single white female. Yeah, like all those weird like made up conceits of like, eh, there's nothing we could do. It's all legal. What was you the uh, Alicia Silverstone <laughs> one? The Crush? Yeah, 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 the Crush. That was a good one. That was a funny conceit, man. <laughs> all those things where it's like, yeah, the cops, they're like, ah, we can't really do anything. The Babadook did that. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that one yet. I saw it yesterday. What did you think of it? I really liked it. I think to be as vague as possible, so as not to give it away, the, the scene where she yells, um, if you touch him again, I'll fucking kill you, is probably like the most emotional I got in a film all year, which I didn't expect. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, yeah, I it had been built up like William Friedkin saying it's the scariest film I've ever seen. And so I was kind of expecting that. And then I wound up not being so scared as I was just kind of like taken in by the story and just sort of the um, just that portrayal of motherhood. Well, I thought it was interesting that um, Friedkin responded to it because it, it really felt like it had that element that The Exorcist did where it just sort of starts with a sad dysfunctional family drama and turns that anxiety into a horror movie. So it feels like whatever anxieties and freaking that led to the exorcist were right there in Babadook, you know? Yeah. And there, there's definitely a lot like a strong exorcist influence on that film. And Sixth Sense, um, I thought, I thought that one yeah. was all over. Mm. You know, everyone's been saying how it kind of wears its influences on its sleeve and it, it does, but it just, uh, I think the, um, Having a woman telling the story of of this mother really gives it this this kind of fresh quality that I just haven't seen much you in mean horror the, movies. You mean Jennifer, Jennifer Kent? Kent? Yeah, yeah. Because there's the moments like where um, the kid is like laying on her again. I don't want to spoil anything, but when he's just like laying around on her, and they're you know like mother and child, and the moments where it really feels like a functional family are the parts where when I was watching, I was like, I could not do that. And I don't think Friedkin could do that. I'm not sure a male director could pull that off to the extent that it was pulled off. Exactly. It's 
And that's why I think it doesn't matter that, you know, it's very um, coming from, you know, Friedkin and Lynch and all these other directors who she's clearly kind of paying homage to and the sixth sense because it has that really distinctive feminine touch to it that it wouldn't work otherwise. I didn't feel like there was much in the way of homage in it. Like, I mean, a movie like um, Purge 2 was sort of littered with Carpenter all over it. It felt like really intentional. But with this one, it just felt like it was coming from sort of the same part of the subconscious Mm. that The Exorcist was working in and that Shyamalan was working in in his first few good ones. You know, just the same sort of fears as opposed to, you know, like learning where to put the camera from watching uh, The Exorcist. I'll have to check that yeah. one out. That sounds definitely uh, do that. Yeah, I I didn't know what the hell it was. I just knew it had a silly name, and I was like, "All right, well." Yeah, it's 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 kind of why I couldn't get scared of it because of the name, but it <laughs> it definitely it becomes very creepy. I think it does it does a good job of of offsetting that. Cool. I was actually more freaked out the second time I watched it. I saw it twice now because I made my friend watch it, and like the second time. Because the first time I was all amped up because I thought I was going to be really scared. And then I wasn't. But then the second time I went in thinking, well, I already saw it. It's not that scary. And then it scared the hell out of me because, like, my defenses were down. Right, right, right. All right. I'm probably going to see it again. Don't, like, lap me, guys. I have, still haven't seen it one time. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up. Brad, we got to have you on more. That was fun. I would love to. And John D'Amico, any, any last words? Uh, no, I got nothing. Brad, any last words for our audience? Uh, go see Citizen Four. Yeah, I, I will. And Best I movie guess, of the year. Yeah, my last words are, uh, I'll go see Citizen Four. <laughs> That's my last words. All right, see you guys later. Bye-bye. <laughs>